Hello, Maura. Hey, Cheryl. How are you today? You know, I am feeling the season, so I guess my question is, do you have any scary stories? Do you mean, like, high interest rates? Eh. No, that's really all I have, but what about you? Do you have any scary stories? I, in fact, do have a scary story, so I was just hoping that you wouldn't have anything uh, so that I can tell you the story of the legally haunted house. Oh, I feel like I need to turn the lights down, light a candle, and sit back with my caramel apple and my popcorn and get ready. Here we go. So, setting the scene, it is 1967. We are in Nyack, New York, which is a little village that is about an hour and a half north of New York City. And a young family moves into a house. The house had actually been vacant for quite a few years, I think about seven mm. years uh, at that point. So uh, it's an old, exactly what you would think that it's going to be, the Victorian mm. style, little run down, clearly has some charm uh, associated with it. So they move in, it's the mid-60s, and at first, you know, they were first getting settled, only Helen and her husband George were there, and the kids hadn't come up yet, and she was outside in the yard right after they bought it, and uh, a few of the neighbor children came by and asked if she had any children, and she let them know that she had four kids and they'd be coming soon. And two of them seemed uh, a little bit standoffish and wouldn't really come near her. And the other two let her know that they were afraid. They were afraid because the house that she was living in was a haunted house. Now, are you sure this is a true story? Because this sounds like the setting of a movie. The scary house on the hill. Some of the kids like to go inside and see if they can rustle up any ghosts. And other kids just run away and won't go near it. And my question is, at the end of the day, like, you know, did the real stories create the movies? Or did the movies create mm. the real stories? And, yes. and that's a chicken and an egg that I don't think I'm going to be able to solve. But it is exactly what you've seen. And, of course, in the movies, like, the you know, the children that go in are the ones that, that get it at the end of the day. They get eaten, Cheryl. They do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly having like, you know, a, a Stephen uh, King it kind of moment mm -hmm. right now in my own head. Mm -hmm. But in this case, she doesn't think too much of it at the time. Uh, she does as she and her husband are getting ready for bed that evening. Uh, she does tell George about it, that she was, you know, some of the kids were afraid of the house. And then she goes to turn off one of the lights that's in the bedroom. And George asks her, what are you doing? Mm. And she's like, well, I'm, honey, I'm doing what I always do before we go to bed at night, which is to turn out all the lights in the room. And he says, I want that light left on and I don't want to talk about it. <gasps> George has had an experience. And we, to this day, we have no idea what George's experience was in that house. George uh, wasn't much of a talker. Got so it. he didn't say anything. But at that point, you know, eventually the four kids uh, do end up coming to the house and they have things that they make a lot out of it. And a lot of our story is coming from Helen's story to the Reader's Digest about 10 years later when she's describing the house. But, you know, a lot of I closed that window. I closed that door. I locked that door. My real thought in my head when I was hearing that part of it was, well, you also have four children. Right. 
And and if you ask them if they left the door open, odds are little Johnny's probably going to say, no, he's not the one that left the door open. And I feel like that's where you and I are similar but but different, whereas we're looking for the practical excuse, the practical reason. Right. But then there's also the piece of me that's extremely paranoid, and <laughs> I would not be sleeping too many nights in that house. <laughs> so... She, you know, and I think Helen is probably, she's definitely in the believer camp, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and her mind is certainly more open uh, than people like me who tend to be a little bit more... Uh, cynical? Uh, yeah, right. cynical is probably a pretty good right. word. Uh, so it was things like, you know, she's standing there on the porch and she can feel someone standing right beside her. Mm. And uh, so she elects to have a conversation with that person and then she feels them walk away. Uh, so that sort of thing is, again, you know, one of those things where I'm like, OK, you're in your own head a little bit. Uh, she claims, though, that she was in one of the rooms, and of course, because this house had sit, sat empty for quite a while, it needed a lot of work, it needed a lot of love. They were updating the house as they went, and, you know, she was a stay-at-home, so she was in large part responsible for those things. And there a lot of the time. If oh, she's absolutely. she's a stay-at-home mom, she is there probably much more than the kids who are at school or the husband who's off at work. Exactly. So there is a room with a color gray that she is not really liking very much. So she's going to tackle this room and she is going to uh, repaint the parlor living room area and get rid of the gray. So she is there doing it and she claims that there was a gentleman that appeared sitting in midair beside her in like revolution war garb watching her and uh, she did what she did with most of the stories that she tells Helen spoke to the ghost uh, asked for their input I think her her feeling was I'm changing their house and I want them to be okay with the changes she wanted their blessing she wanted their blessing she wanted you know the friendly ghost and not the irritated ghost who may have picked out the ugly gray that she's clearly trying to cover over and she does say most of her interactions were pretty pleasant. And the, the one that was probably, other than obviously, if you believe it, the ghost that's sitting in midair beside her, as she claims that one of her daughters, Cynthia, was one of those children who was not a morning person and did not like to get out of bed. And that there was a ghost in Cynthia's room that would violently shake her bed every morning as like the most ghostly of alarm clocks to get Cynthia out of bed. I would never have slept in this house. <laughs> but now you mentioned that Helen was, is telling these stories or has told these stories over the years. And you did mention just a moment ago Reader's Digest. Yes. And I know that plays a big role in our story. Oh, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about that because I'm intrigued about the, her writing the story for Reader's Digest. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not the only old Victorian there. In the mid-1970s, Reader's Digest was huge. Maybe it was just me because I was always a reader, but I can remember being at my grandparents' house, and I was, uh, so I'm, my mother's the oldest of eight. I'm the oldest of 20-something first cousins. My daughter is one of like 30 to 40 grands. There are a lot of people in that house Mm -hmm. when people come together. And I would be the one who would find a dark room somewhere where no one wanted to be, which is hard enough. 
and pull out the Reader's Digest and read all of the stories that were in there. And they did a lot of the first-hand account sorts of things. So they had put an ad in there for basically haunted haunted house ghost stories and Helen was paid in night and I don't know how much money that is today but in mid 1970s dollars she was paid three thousand dollars to write the article that's a lot of money for the mid 1970s I'm thinking that it probably yes probably really helped so she wrote her account and neither one of us can say how much of it she embellished but I'm sure for readers You have to imagine that she was writing a story that she thought would catch people's attention and then you hand it over to editors and the editors worked their magic to make it a Reader's Digest style story and she was paid handsomely at the time. Yes. And does Helen still live in this house? She does not. As, as would, you know, normally happen, uh, eventually she wanted to move out of it. George passed away the year after the Reader's Digest article, so uh, she lived there with the four children for quite a while after that and decided to sell the house in 1991. So she was there for a long time. She's a typical downsizer. She was. She was. She was headed to Florida. (laughs) I don't know if she went directly there, but uh, but eventually Helen, as as all little snowbirds do. Go straight to Boca, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Absolutely ended up in Florida. In 1991, she decides uh, that she's going to sell the house. And at that point, it was, I don't know how much she paid. they paid for it in 1967, but in 1991, it was on the market, and the offer that they got was 650000 So that gives you kind of an indication as to where the property values were. They did find a buyer. She was absolutely insistent that the, the buyer was told. None of this comes from Helen because, you know, by the time of the podcast and the other news articles that have come up lately, Helen had already passed away, uh, but a real estate agent is still alive. <laughs> but so Helen insisted that the buyer was told oh, absolutely. that the house was haunted. Yes. Okay. He put an offer down on the property. The agent called Helen to go through the offer, as you would, and Helen said, I don't want to accept this offer until we make sure that he knows. And she was very open about the uh, about the fact that there were ghosts. This was, wasn't anything that she was trying to hide. No, she put it in Reader's Digest. And in the Reader's Digest, it talks about when one of her daughters got married, a, a little silver tong appeared somewhere in the house. And when mm-hmm. her first grandchild was born, a little baby gold ring appeared in the house. So she felt like these ghosts were giving her gifts. But she did want to make sure that the buyer knew about it her agent, the seller's agent, says that he called the buyer and told the buyer, I just want to let you know that the seller believes that her house is haunted. His recollection of this is that the buyer laughed and that they both went on with their day. Mm-hmm. That the buyer wasn't an actual believer in the paranormal and didn't think anything of it. And also, we might want to make a note here that 1991, it may be too early for there to be buyer representation in New York. I can't verify that, but late 80s, early 90s was when buyer representation started. And so it's very possible that that was an unrepresented buyer. Correct. And the seller was speaking directly to them. 
Just for any newer agents listening who might wonder why a listing agent might call a buyer directly. Exactly. And and I think that that in large part probably in an age of seller and buyer representation, I don't know whether we have this fun court case because I think these things might have been worked out uh, also with the fact that how we make disclosures is going to be a lot more specific these days. But what happened in the case was whether or not he was told, and we don't know for certain because there was no conversation in any of the court cases about whether that agent actually spoke to that buyer. So I don't know whether it wasn't argued. I don't know whether it was because it wasn't in writing so it didn't count, which is, as a lawyer, a very valid reason not to include something like that. But also before the days of email. Absolutely, positively. There was less ability to put things in writing. And even agents need to be careful these days because even some things that you may put in writing and tell the other side may not be something that could be admitted into court anyway because it isn't considered a notice in your contract. Because Mm -hmm. at least here in Georgia, and every state will differ a little bit, notices have to be, yes, in writing, but they also have to be signed. And very rarely does an email actually have a signature line in it. But what happened was they go under contract for 650000 He puts down a $32,500 either deposit or earnest money. And the court case is really not clear as to whether it was earnest money or whether it was a deposit toward the purchase price. And some of the legal arguments lately, you know, later that have come up about it, really talk about the fact that everyone missed the boat on that part Mm. too. Like, what was this money? Mm -hmm. Because you and I both know here in Georgia, we have option money and we have earnest monies, and those things are going to be handled very differently. And whether the buyer gets it back or it's something that the seller is going to get regardless is really going to depend and one of the reasons why we have a lot more things in writing these days. So did this buyer get all the way to closing and did he move in or did the argument come up before those things happened? It came up after they went under contract, after he put down the deposit, he tried to get a contractor to go to the house to make some repairs and the contractor refused to enter the house. So the contractor was afraid of the alleged supernatural activity, but also it... Not to go off on a tangent, but it calls into question why a buyer is sending a contractor to do work to a house before they've even closed. But I know that's neither here nor there. Exactly. That is one of those things where, okay, this isn't what I would want to have happen. And it may be that he was calling the contractor out there to give an estimate to see what certain things would cost. He couldn't get this guy to go anywhere near the house. I don't think that he becomes any more of a believer in paranormal at that point. What he's actually afraid of is, number one, I can't get a contractor to go into the house, <laughs> which is, you know, not not a small issue for him. But he's also starting to, to have what I would consider buyer's remorse, that this is going to be something that impacts the value of his property and his ability to sell it going forward. It's becoming, in his mind, a stigmatized property. That is absolutely correct. So, you know, in in my head, if I am trying to figure out what really happened, and this is where putting things in writing would solve this for everyone, I think he knew before. I think that the call between the, the real estate agent and the buyer probably absolutely happened. Helen, this was not something Helen ever wanted to try and hide. She was also aware that he was coming from out of town. So even though this had been in the Reader's Digest, even though this house was on a walking ghost tour of (laughs) Nyack Village, New York, she knew that he was coming 
coming from out of the area and she wanted to make sure that he knew. But at that point, he's thinking, okay, well, this is going to affect my property value going forward. So I want to try and figure out how, how to get out of this deal. So he files a lawsuit. Who do you think he sued? Gosh, I'm guessing he must have sued the seller and her agent. That is absolutely the correct answer. And that's something that we have to remember as real estate agents is that odds are either because the real estate brokerage is considered to be a deep pocket or because obviously they think the agent is culpable for the actions of their client. It is not that unusual for if a seller is going to get sued for a real estate agent or their brokerage to be sued at the same time. Well, on that spooky note, we should take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. And you just gave us a scary cliffhanger of the buyer suing the agent and the seller. But really, we think he wants an out to the contract. And That's absolutely right. Tell us a little bit about the court case because it's going to impact disclosure moving forward. Exactly. At least in the state of New York. Exactly. He is arguing uh, a couple of things that the haunting should have been disclosed to him and that it wasn't. So he's saying that that, that never happened. And he is also saying that there's an occupancy issue because there are people living in the house that won't be getting out. (laughs) Now, I'm going to use, if you can't see it over podcast, I'm using air quotes for people. Yes. Um, But his, his argument was that there was an actual, like, how many people in possession of the house uh, when he was going to take occupancy of it. The initial court case, they throw out his argument. They're not going to let him out. They are going to say that New York, just like uh, Georgia, is a caveat interstate, which means buyer beware. Buyer beware. Which means that if you have a question about something that you feel like is important with the property, it's your duty as a buyer to go and figure that thing out before They said that there are already enough roadblocks in getting to a closing, Mm. which is a very practical, actually, comment for a judge to say. But there are enough practical roadblocks. There's due diligence. There are inspectors. There are appraisers. Do we really have to involve clairvoyance? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in in our and and then they also argued this supposed haunting was wholly immaterial uh, so they threw out the entire argument at that point the buyer appealed uh, so he appealed to a higher court and the real estate agent was lucky enough to have a brother who was a an attorney so bad news is agent got sued good news is he worked a family deal for the legal fees uh, but the court case where it ended on a, where it headed to appeal was really the fun part of all of this because some of the some of the best quotes from the decision as they said number 1 they didn't find that the, that the agent had made any mistakes but they also found that the buyer didn't have to buy the house and they actually split the baby and literally divided up the 3250 and each side got half of it hmm. But some of my favorite quotes from the court case are on the side that found that it was haunted, said, in his pursuit of a legal remedy for fraudulent misrepresentation against the seller, the plaintiff hasn't a ghost of a chance. I nevertheless move by the spirit of equity to allow the buyer to seek to rescind the contract for sale and get his down payment back. I love a judge with a sense of humor. A very practical problem arises with respect to the discovery of paranormal. Who you gonna call? Oh, I know the answer. I know the answer. Ghostbusters. 
And that is why this case is called the Ghostbusters case, because of that one quote. But he also said, applying the strict rule of caveat emptor to a contract involving a house possessed by poltergeist conjures up visions of a psychic or median routinely accompanying the structural engineer and the Terminex man. The notion that a haunting is a condition which could be ascertained by a reasonable inspection is a hobgoblin. So what he's saying at the end of the day is that there's no inspection that the buyer could have possibly done. Therefore, the seller had to disclose. She also wasn't allowed to argue, although I don't think Helen would have wanted to anyway, that the house wasn't actually haunted because haunting isn't a thing. I think she was pretty proud of it. She was extremely proud of it. But the court said she could never make the argument that it wasn't because of the Reader's Digest article, because she had made it a haunted house to the world, at least to the local village. Even if it wasn't actually haunted. It was legally haunted, and she couldn't argue that it wasn't. The dissent said that this notion that you can do a reasonable inspection and find this, if the doctrine of caveat emptor is to be discarded, it should be for a reason more substantive than a poltergeist. So the dissenting judge wasn't really super happy about all of this. But I really think probably like the the biggest takeaways of this is number one, that a real estate agent needs to be really careful. Your job is to protect your client, but you also have to protect yourself and your own own livelihood. And that's why we have realtor code of ethics. That's why we have license law requirements and things like that. So you're licensed individuals, but really, really it is the getting it getting it in writing well and the good news is that in today's day and age there is buyer representation correct so in most cases at least in our market there will be two agents involved in almost every transaction right there's the buyer side and the seller side and it's their responsibility as you said to represent their clients and their clients interests but to do so honestly and ethically that's why when you're on the listing side, you tell your clients, disclose, disclose, disclose. And when you're on the buyer side, you tell your buyers, inspect, 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 and do your due diligence. Because once you are through that period, unless you can prove, and the burden of proof is generally on you, if I'm not mistaken, Correct. as the buyer, that you were misled. It's very difficult to go back and say, but I didn't know. Correct. This goes into, you know, patent versus latent defects and things like that. There are laws there, even caveat emptor states like Georgia, where sellers have to disclose things that buyers couldn't find upon a reasonable inspection. But we all, you also have to realize as real estate agents that you're going to be dealing with buyers that are coming from different states, sellers that may live in different states, right? This could be a property that they don't live in now or they never lived in to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and agents need to remember that they shouldn't assume what their clients do and do not know about what's required to be disclosed. Because, you know, this case was actually changed six months after the court hearing because the entire, you know, New York legislature is like, we cannot let this atrocity stand. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to pass laws that will create requirements for disclosure. But, you know, you have to remember that even in 2020, every state is going to differ a little bit. In no state do you have to disclose that your house is haunted. I mean, this is all, you know, a fun Halloween joke. But there are actual differences in the different states as to whether or not you have to disclose whether someone's ever passed away in the house. Let's talk a little bit about that as far as, I know we can't cover all 50 states, but what the disclosure laws are in Georgia with stigmatized properties related to death. And of course, death comes in many shapes and sizes. That's correct. Homicide, suicide, 
I know I did a little Googling and in Alaska and South Dakota, for example, as long as Google was giving me correct information, you only have to disclose a homicide or a suicide if it was in the last 12 months. There are going to be differences in opinion as to what actually stigmatizes a property. And I think that, you know, you may also see some differences again in cause of death. Right. So, you know, someone who passes away peacefully in their sleep is is going to be interpreted differently in some people's opinion mm -hmm. than someone who uh, took their own life in a property or were killed in the property. Right. And looking at a couple of other examples, in California, it's all deaths, even natural causes, but as long as they were in the last three years. So the ghosts only last for three years. Is uh, that what we're saying? Okay. Apparently, okay. Yes. Okay. Or six um, months if you're in, in one of the Dakotas. Right. Okay. But 36 states, according again, according to what I found on Google, and states can change their laws, in 36 states you don't have to disclose any death, violent or otherwise. So what are we talking about here in Georgia? What are we required to disclose in Georgia? What the seller has to voluntarily say to a buyer is absolutely nothing. So that's where Georgia is one of these where you don't have a duty to mm -hmm. disclose. Where we split our baby is that if a seller is asked, they have to answer the question. So they can't not answer it. If they are asked, they have to give a response and that answer has to be the, the correct response. It doesn't have anything to do with what the manner of death was at all. It's just Georgia just says any death and doesn't set any sort of a time period. Obviously, the seller can only disclose something that the seller's aware of. So if three owners back, Ma passed away, you, you have no way of knowing potentially that that happened. Right. I want to go back to Helen for a minute because I think that listing agent missed an incredible opportunity with a house that was so well known exactly. via Reader's Digest. Clearly, there is a market out there, maybe not so much in 1991, but now with the internet making it easier to find properties and for people to really be able to find a property that fills a niche that they're looking for. For example, that house that we're talking about in Nyack, New York, the Ghostbusters case house, sold most recently in 2021 yep. for $1.8 which is 164.75% higher than every other recent sale in that area. Someone clearly is saying, I want to live in a house with, by the way, their names are Sir George and Lady Margaret, the alleged ghosts. <laughs> and this is this is taking into account that no one past Helen has seen any or admitted to seeing any paranormal activity in the house. But also, even in 1991... After this case happened, obviously the plaintiff wasn't required to purchase the house. They were deluged with offers on this thing, including someone who was like purported to be a median who wanted to live there in order to bank on the notoriety of the house. So it is clearly one person's stigma is something that another person may absolutely be drawn to. What you also have to consider is we all think that our opinion is the right opinion and it's the opinion everyone else has. But this actually may have been a great selling point instead of something that actually stigmatized the property. That wasn't something that the court case talked about at all either. It was sort of presumed in the court case that the plaintiff was correct and that this haunting would ha would hurt his property values going forward. And I think that, that everyone underestimated the fact that all of this made the house famous. That's right. And people like those little touches. And obviously all properties have increased in value, but you're right. That one, even with, I mean, in the little street that it's on, it had, has some pretty similar houses. That thing has got its own little cachet because of this court case. That's so. right.
Would you live in that house, Cheryl? Would you live in a purportedly haunted house? I have lived in a purportedly haunted house, and I think it has more to do with my cynicism than anyone else. If you called my mother right now, she would absolutely believe. And it wasn't a beautiful 1800 Victorian. It was some little cookie cutter house in Slidell, Louisiana. And I never saw any of that activity, but my mother swears that things flew off of the the mantle of the fireplace. Uh, She claims that she woke up one night and something was holding her down that wasn't actually there. I think that I would. Have I ever been scared in a house alone at night when I heard a sound that I couldn't identify? Yes, it scared me, but I I just don't know that I believe. I'm guessing your first thought wasn't, there's a ghost in my house. Your first thought was, there's a person in my house. My first thought was, there was was a person, and where's my daughter, and where's my, you know, implements to defend myself? (laughs) There is actually a website now where interested consumers can check to see if there are not necessarily hauntings, but there's a service called Died in House. And the website is www.diedinhouse.com. And for, I think, the low, low price of around $11, or maybe it's $11.99, they will do a report for you. And it's similar to a Zillow situation, right? So how does Zillow formulate his estimate? Well, they have an algorithm and they they gather information from the World Wide Web. And that's what this website does. And of course, they have a disclaimer. When I put in my address, thankfully, nothing came up. (laughs) So Um, you don't have to move out. You haven't been there very long. That's true. They do say that they are gathering information from the internet. And they say, in Georgia, an owner and agent are not liable for the failure to disclose a prior death in the home, but must answer truthfully, as you've said, any direct inquiry about an occurrence or the manner of death on a property. No cause of legal action shall rise against an owner or his agent for the failure to disclose the fact or suspicion if they don't have that material knowledge. So can this service be handy? Sure. If you're looking for something that gives you a little bit more confidence that there hasn't been a death by any manner in the house, and if they were able to find that information on the internet, you can get that in a report. But I think the thing that they actually give that's maybe a little bit more useful is they give a variety of other information. Meth lab records. Again, if it was reported. If it's reported, yeah. Fire-related records, registered sex offender data, property information, sales history, tax value and assessment, and cemetery locations nearby. (laughs) And we give, in our Georgia contracts, obviously, we give out the websites for the clandestine laboratories, which are our meth labs. And we give out the information with regard to the sex offenders' websites. And I think that probably based upon the information that's on there, what you're most likely going to find are violent deaths. Mm -hmm. Because if someone dies peacefully in their sleep, there is a record of where they passed away, but that's usually just on their death certificate, which are not public records and they probably have no access to. But what they are pulling probably is news reports. Mm -hmm. So if something something bad happens at a property, that's going to be something that's going to end up on their list. And then for real estate agents, I have a question for you. I know agents who don't ask because they don't want to know. They get the feeling when they're dealing with one individual there who's a little bit older and they know that they've lost a spouse and they just don't want to ask the extra question of, did they die in the property? Have you ever had that feeling or what would you do? I've had some sellers who have volunteered it to me Uh and they've said, please don't tell anyone. And I explained to them that it's not my place to tell anyone unless I'm asked and then I have to be truthful. And when we have a conversation about that, usually they understand that I'm just not going to shout it from the rooftops or put it in the listing. Right. 
I have not asked if it's not been volunteered to me unless a buyer's agent or a buyer comes to me and asks, which I can say I can count on the fingers of one hand the right. number of times that's happened. However, I do often have buyers who ask me, do you think anyone has died in this house? And what I tell them is we can ask with the expectation that the listing agent and their seller will follow the letter of the law and be truthful, but also they may not know because they only have the knowledge from the length of their time of ownership. Exactly. So how do we know for certain? We don't. And the only thing we can do is ask. And and also, I think we all, whether you believe it or not, I think the one lesson that we can learn from Helen is if you think you have ghosts with you, you should just be nice. Well, I think that's a lesson that a lot of us could use just in general. Absolutely. Whether you have ghosts or not, we should just be nice people. I think that's our new rule. So do you have any any other legal lessons or disclosure advice that we could round out the end of this episode? When you talk about the fact that you have sellers who don't necessarily want it volunteered, what you do also have to remember if you're a listing agent or if you're a seller is that if the neighbors know, so will the buyer at mm-hmm. some point. That's going to probably be one of the very first things that comes up, particularly if the manner of death was a little bit more on the harsh side of things. We have had closings where obviously times where we have to record a copy of a death certificate in order to transfer the title in a joint tenancy situation. And we obviously redact out place of death, cause of death, and social security number because we're recording this into a public record and those things don't need to go there. I know sometimes that someone has passed away in the property, and I think sellers probably should in the disclose, disclose, disclose rule. I think you probably are better going ahead and having the conversation because when buyers find out later, they may feel like this was hidden from them regardless of what the legal requirements are, and then they may believe that the same person would hide other things from them. And it's just one of those things that can cause issues after closing. It can snowball during the transaction and it can make those conversations very difficult. And a lesson for the real estate agents is that we are a reputation-based business. Absolutely. And that you may have had no prior knowledge before the buyer found out from the neighbors, but it may come back to haunt you. No pun intended. (laughs) Oh, I think you intended that pun. I did. If you want to know more about this infamous Ghostbusters ruling, you can look at the show notes. We're going to post a couple of links for you there, as well as a link to the Ghostbusters ruling house on their Zillow page. So you can look at the house itself, and then we'll also put that link to Dyden House if you'd like to use it at any time, or just check out your own house to see if anyone has died in house. And to everyone, I hope you have a very, very, very haunted Halloween. Have a great day. Bye. <laughs>